You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you this morning. And I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Luke 19, um, 1 through through 10. And uh, I'm so glad that you're here, that you braved the drizzle outside, and uh, that you made it to... Uh, to hear the word of God with your church family. Um, God in his great providence has given us this text to focus on this morning, Luke 19, 1 through, 1 through 10. And, um, and I'm excited um, for us to look at it as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And uh, so we're gonna just go ahead and read it. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And uh, you can follow along as I read it. I encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a a Bible with you, that you would grab one either in the back or in the seat pocket in front of you and uh, follow along so you can see it for yourself. Um, So I can help you to understand it and um, and to apply it, uh, but that you'll be able to see it for yourselves. You need to be able to see this yourself. This is not my words. These are not my words. These are the Lord's words. So let's read it, Um, Luke 19, 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half Of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have frauded or defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what an incredible passage we have to look at. What an amazing passage the Lord has given us for today. These are the Lord's words. This is the word of God. We believe that this is inspired by God. Each and every one of these words is from the God of the universe who writes to his people and makes known to us who he is and how we should live. And so if we're smart, we pay attention to to every dot, every iota that we see um, the Lord provide for us in in this book. And so there are a lot of wonderful details in this scripture. But let me make known to you the main point of this. The doctrine or, or the main point of what we're seeing in this text, the authorial intent as we make our way through Luke's gospel, there's a progression to this thing, not only in Luke's gospel, but in the entire Bible. 
There's a progression. So we ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in that progression? Where do we find ourselves in, in light of the whole redemptive narrative from Genesis to Revelation? What is exactly Jesus saying here? And, and, uh, and what is the progression of Luke's gospel? How do we find uh, the main focus, uh, the main point, the intention of why Luke's writing this? And it, it's pretty clear. And that's this. I'll just state it for you up front. What we're seeing in this is Jesus making clear the reason for his coming. He's making that crystal clear, the reason for which he has come. And that is simply to seek and to save sinners. So Jesus is just making that clear. He's making clear the reason for which he has come to earth, and that is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is making that very clear, and it's very straightforward. That's the doctrine that's being made known in this particular text. And so Jesus, in a very straightforward way, is just making clear the reason for his coming. Uh, he's making clear the reason um, for this messianic fulfillment. Uh, you got to understand, this text has a lot of background behind it, a, a lot of background behind it. Uh, there's a lot behind this text in terms of, in terms of uh, historical context and, and religious context and redemptive context. There's a lot packed behind the curtain of these particular verses, that if you would want to understand this, you would have to understand that information. And so uh, we're going to uncover that a little bit. But he's making clear the reason for his incarnation, the reason for his suffering, uh, the reason for his cross, the, the reason for his resurrection, the reason for what he's doing right now in Zacchaeus's life, uh, the reason that uh, he will go to heaven and do this redemptive work in the, in the heart and lives of, of his people. So Jesus Christ, mark it down, came to seek and to save sinners. That's why he came. If you've ever wondered that, uh, you have clarity now. This is the reason that Jesus came, to seek and to save sinners. And that's what Christ himself and God wants you to know from this passage. Uh, that's what he's calling our attention to. That's why I'm calling your attention to this section this morning, uh, because Luke is calling our attention here, and Christ is too. The main point of this, then, is that you would know Jesus Christ. He came primarily as his task, as his purpose. Uh, the reason why God had set this up was to seek and to save sinners. That's why I've entitled this, Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. And this is part two of, of the message. Now, it's not been difficult to follow the logical flow of this. You got to understand this. Uh, you, you have to understand that there's a logical flow to this that gets you to this main point. If you've been reading along or listening along in Luke's gospel with us, you understand this is not very difficult to see, right? Jesus has, has centered his attention, listen now, upon the teaching of salvation as he enters Jerusalem. Remember, the journey to Jerusalem is training his disciples, teaching. When he enters Jerusalem in the very, in two sections from now, um, he's going to teach more, but the focus now is death and, and resurrection. Uh, we're about to enter the passion narratives. So he's approaching Jerusalem. He's really close. And as he's doing this, he's teaching on one final issue, and it's the main issue, and that's salvation. Have you ever wondered about this? Have you ever asked yourself about the truth about salvation? You can believe whatever you want about how someone's saved, about how someone gets to heaven, about how someone's right with God. Uh, you can believe whatever you want. Doesn't mean that it's true. You just can make it up. Jesus here, the very son of God, is now making clear to us truths about salvation. Here's what he's done so far in the, in the, in the recent past in this, sec, in this book. He's made clear the, future, the present kingdom. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he's talking about salvation. You enter his kingdom through repentance and faith in his atoning work. So he talks about this present spiritual kingdom. They thought this present kingdom, the Jews did, was going to be a, uh, a, a victorious um, uh, kingdom, present, um, visible kingdom where Israel would be the, the, the chief nation of the world. They'd be the superpower. And Jesus made clear to us a couple of chapters ago, no, I'm talking about a salvific kingdom. You enter my kingdom through salvation, right? 
Then he made clear that, no, there will also be a future visible kingdom. That's at Jesus' second coming, which could happen at any moment, right? Then he gives clarity in chapter 18 about how to enter the kingdom, right? He gives these four conditions, very clear, as to how someone enters the kingdom of God, right? From there, he, he describes his suffering to his disciples, which makes it possible to enter his kingdom, right? Without Christ's sufferings, uh, no one's getting in the kingdom because he has to pay the price for sin. And then he's displayed from there his authority to save into his kingdom. He heals the blind man, and uh, that just displays as the king, as God's king, as God's Christ. He's got not only authority to heal a blind man, he's got authority to save someone's soul. And so he's just showing this up and down. He is the king. If you enter his kingdom, you come under his reign and rule. He has the authority to put you into the kingdom, to transfer you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light, right? So he's displaying all this. And now Jesus is just tying a bow on all this salvific teaching. He's tying a bow on it. And what he's making clear is the reason for which he has come is to, to do this, to save the lost, to, to save sinners, right? And um, you're going to see, though, next week, when we, when we move to the next section, um, you're going to see how this uh, really even continues on, because Jesus then is going to make clear in this little very last section before the triumphal entry that people, he's come to do this, but people will reject it. People will reject his reign and his rule, his kingship, and therefore reject entrance into his kingdom. So people will reject it, right? They don't want people to reign over them. Look at verse 14. At the end of verse 14 in chapter 19, just look down at your text, right? We do not want this man to, what? Reign over us. He's gonna, he's gonna give a parable there, but it's the parable of, people's rejection of the kingdom. And so this is just all easy to see. This is all very clear, what Jesus is doing now. So what you can take and be assured of from this passage is that Jesus is making clear the reason for which he's come. And so you can just, you can mark it down, you can turn the page, you can, you can be sure of it, that you have the reason for which Jesus Christ came to this earth, right? And that's important. That's really important. Because let me tell you this, uh, you need to, as, as a church here, we need to, you need to protect and preserve this doctrine. You need to protect and preserve this teaching. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, right? Uh, he didn't come for other reasons. He didn't come to, to provide health. He, he didn't come to provide wealth. He didn't come to, to make you rich. He didn't come to make you the, the best family in Mandeville. Right? He didn't come to, to make you prosperous in all that you do. Uh, Jesus Christ did not just come to be a good example. Right? He didn't make, come to make your family moral and just like acceptable by your friends and culture around you. Right? You got to understand this. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the doctrine that you have to preserve and protect. That's the teaching of the scriptures that you have to preserve and protect. Uh, you have to protect that. And we need to be unified as a church on that mission to protect it, which is why we preach the word straight from the word. Because we need to protect the doctrine that Jesus teaches us, which that he didn't come for all those other reasons. He came to save sinners. And you need to know that, you need to protect that, and you need to, we need to preserve that. That's extremely important. Because what the world might think is that Jesus Christ came to do something other than what he came to do, right? And we know why he came. But that involves a lot of things. It involves the world understanding that they are the sinners, right? The world understanding their true condition, uh, that they are sinful and that they are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, that they are not friends with God if they have not repented and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are what the Bible calls at enmity with God. And so they need to understand this doctrine because without this doctrine, they have no understanding that they need to be saved. And we need to teach them that they do need to be saved. 
and that this is what Jesus Christ came to do, that someone would realize their own sinful condition, repent of, their, of living for themselves and submit their whole lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and truly be born again. And then he'll change your whole life, right? Not only will he improve this life for you, but he'll improve dramatically, eternally, the next life. And so we need to protect and preserve this doctrine, but we also need to proclaim it to the lost. We need to be unified on this mission. You don't understand. We, this is the mission of the church, is we protect and proclaim the truth, and nobody's stopping uh, what, what this says, right? This, is, this, is, this trumps everything. And then we need to proclaim it to the lost. Listen now, you have to proclaim this truth. That the world would know Jesus Christ came to save sinners because then the world knows that they are sinful. The world knows that they need saving. The world knows Jesus came to save sinners. Why do sinners need to be saved? Who are the sinners? What does that mean to be saved? We need to tell the lost world that. There are people around you in your life who will suffer the, the wrath of God, and perhaps some people in this room will suffer the judgment of God because they are the sinners that need to be saved. And they haven't been yet. But everyone around you, the world, rejects this truth. And that's what this even next section says. You need to, listen now, just, we need to be unified in this mission as a church. Can I tell you something? If you're unified in this mission, you'll stop looking at yourself, your problems, uh, the other church members' problems, uh, you know, thinking how can I be more comfortable, um, not do so much work, uh, et cetera, and you'll start thinking about, man, forget myself. We're on a mission, right? We're on a mission. We gotta tell the lost world that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save sinners. Even if I suffer for this or I'm uncomfortable by doing this, this is the mission. We gotta tell the world this. There's a, there's, a, there's a dying world that needs to understand that Christ came to save sinners. They don't even understand that they're sinners, right? This is the mission we're on, to tell the world this, to tell the world this. We're so concerned with ourselves. We need to be concerned with this. We need to be unified in this. That's called evangelism, uh, proclaiming the good news, right? So this is very, very important for you. This is very important for all of us. Listen, John 1 says um, uh, uh, that he came to his own and his own people, what? Did not receive him. So this is, this is what the result will be. But we need to tell people, right? This teaching is very straightforward. And as I mentioned, Jesus is making this clear now. Now, let me just tell you this. Look at verse 10 and you can see it. It's not hard for you to see what the main point of this section is. Verse 10 says, for the son of man came to what? Seek and save the lost, right? Now you have to understand that's a summary statement of what everything just happened in this, in this of everything that happened in this section. The statement is a summary of this particular event, right? This is a real life illustration. It really happened, but it's a summary of what just happened. So he came, he sought Zacchaeus, and he saved Zacchaeus, and he says, I came to seek and save the lost. But it's not only a summary statement. At the same time, he's teaching the reason for the messianic fulfillment, for his coming at large, right? The Jews expected the Messiah to establish Israel as a world power. They expected the Messiah just to come and perform signs. Yet his true disciples will, will look back at, after the resurrection, and they're going to understand, oh, yeah, now we understand it. Jesus said this. He came to provide forgiveness, right? This is what Paul says. Look, 2 Timothy 1. He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Listen, Christ's appearing and his finished work on the cross brings eternal life. That's the message here. That's the idea. Paul says it like this, 1 Timothy 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. I mean, this has got to be something that you are firm on, that you understand, that you preserve and protect and proclaim. 
right? Jesus is making this clear here. Now, let me tell you something. You know, Jesus said some other reasons for which he's come. Before we get into the text, listen to this. Jesus says some other things. You might say, yeah, he says he came to seek and to save the lost here in this particular passage. But in John 6, 38, in Hebrews 10, you know what he says? I came to do the will of my father. Okay, so did you come to do the will of your father or did you come to seek and save the lost? In John 12, 46 and John 15, 22, he said, I came to bring light. I mean, he says these things explicitly. In Hebrews, he says, he came to be made like his people. It says that. Jesus in John 18 says Jesus came to bear witness about the truth. In 1 John 3, Jesus says he came to destroy the works of the devil. In John 9, 39, Jesus says he came into the world for judgment. In Matthew 5, Jesus says he came into the world to fulfill the law. In Luke 12, he says he came not to bring peace, but he came to bring division, separating the believers from false believers. Uh, what are we to make of this? He's, say, he's saying he's coming for all these reasons, right? Well, here's how you're to understand this. In the plan of God for the Messiah to come and bring sinners to, to, sinners to salvation, all of these purposes find their fulfillment. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ as the ultimate good news of how man is reconciled to God, all of these truths find their great fulfillment. He destroys the work of the devil. He fulfills the law. He, he becomes like his people. He separates true believers from those who, who don't believe. All of this is fulfilled through his ultimate purpose of saving sinners. Now, you got to understand this. This is the whole point of the scriptures. This is the whole point of the Bible. The entire point of the entire Bible is this message from beginning to end. Did you know that? I mean, you got to know that this, the whole reason the Bible it gives this narrative is this progression called redemptive, uh, redemptive history. It's a salvific history. It's the time when God created the world, man sinned, and then God has this plan throughout all of time to, to bring his Messiah, to bring his people back to himself. The whole Bible it's not about you in an applicational uh, topical index. It's a redemptive story. You got to understand this. I mean, I want you to understand this because it'll mature you. I, I was with Bo um, this past week and he was uh, preaching. He's preaching to me uh, weekly through the book of Hebrews. And I'm working on his preaching and he's going to be a great preacher. And um, yes, give him a round of applause. And so he's He's preaching through the book of Hebrews, and, and I'm just sitting there listening to him. And this, it was the second week that he was doing this. And, um, and he was on the first two verses of Hebrews, which says, in the former days, um, God uh, spoke through the prophets, and now he's spoken through his, his son. And the, the, the word choices that are used there, the fact that God spoke in, in portions and in different ways over the course of time. And Bo described it like a puzzle. He was just adding pieces, God, in different portions along the way, through the prophets, uh, through the fathers. They were just speaking portions of something. They were putting pieces in the puzzle along the way. And now the final fulfillment, the greatest picture, the, the finished picture is when Christ came and we saw this for real. This is, what, this is what God has been doing. He's been developing this, this plan to save sinners, and Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Uh, the, the final picture is shown in the Son, in, in Christ Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, and we see this picture, but the whole Bible leads us up into this point, right? You need to understand this, that the whole Bible points us to this. Um, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the, the divine son of God would come. God would send him because man had been lost due to their sin and he was coming to reconcile them back through a perfect sacrifice, which is his son, Jesus Christ. This is the whole plan of God. Now, the, the matter in chapter 19 divides, it up, uh, divides itself up pretty clearly into three divisions, okay? There's the seeking, number one, then there's the saving, number two. And then there's the summary, number three. 
Okay, so as we, it, it's pretty clear that this is what Jesus is saying and this is the point that we see in our text and I wanna make all of this clear to you, okay? So we've seen Christ seek the sinner. We've seen number one last week and it simply reminds us um, uh, that Christ does the initiating work here. And then secondly, we, we're gonna see today um, Christ saved the sinner. Now, you're gonna have to pay attention because there's a lot of details in this, okay? And then thirdly, we're gonna see this summary. When he's done, he's going to summarize what he just did with Zacchaeus, and then he's gonna give the very purpose of his, of his coming. And um, as I said, this is important for us to understand. Uh, the whole Bible points us to this. Um, this is the reason for the incarnation, this is the reason for Jesus' proclamation. This all happens by Jesus' initiation, and it's all for the purpose of regeneration. Um, Jesus is just making this clear. Uh, this is why God foretold the Messiah coming. Um, this is why he's there. And uh, the whole Bible points to it. He comes to save people who are separated from God because of their sin. So let me recap the seeking. Number one verses one through five. Just read it. I'm just going to spend a few minutes on it. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, if you weren't here last week, I just encourage you to go back and listen to get all the details. But let's just say this for now. Remember Jericho. Remember its position on, its, on the journey to Jerusalem. He's passing through New Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. This is the last stop. Also in Jerusalem is the central tax collection station. I mean, in Jericho. And so Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector, is the highest rank you can get, the highest official. He's the chief tax collector in the central tax station, right? And we understand that he has a Jewish name. That was important to note. And we understood that his name means clean or righteous or pure, which is the very opposite of who he is but it's who he will become through Christ and his saving work, right? And so this is uh, rare for the name to be given of a tax collector. Uh, we don't see this except with Matthew. We just, they're just labeled tax collectors and sinners, but we understand and most scholars agree that the name, his name Zacchaeus is given, listen now, because he became a well-known uh, person in the early church. In fact, uh, many point to him being the pastor of the church in Caesarea Philippi. So this man becomes a pastor, right? And so um, this would be the story of the, his conversion, which many early church members would look at and, and marvel at. So here's this chief tax collector, highest official in the central station. What do we know about tax collectors? Well, they're extremely dis, what? Honest, right? They're considered unclean. Um, because of their dealing with the Gentiles. They only care about money. Their whole life is to serve money. Uh, they um, are okay to let their lives go morally and religiously just in order to be rich. And, uh, and so they are despised by the Romans too because uh, they're dealing um, with their own people, right? Uh, they trade, they're, they're traitors to their own people to just become rich. But So Rome despises them even though they're, they're employed by Rome, right? They just have to have a certain amount that they give back to Rome. They're able to tax anything else they want. They're able to make themselves rich. Rome doesn't care because as long as they're getting what they're getting and the Jews now are, are viewing these tax collectors as traitors, ones who, have, who are unclean because of ceremonially unclean because of their dealing with the Gentiles. Um, these people are just, they, they, they don't, they're stuck in the middle. They don't have any, anyone around them. In fact, uh, they were surrounded by thugs who would then help them get their money, which is why they're commonly referred to as tax collectors and what? Sinners, 
right? That's the posse they run with. And so they're rich because they make commission off of everyone underneath them. And they also have the freedom to tax everything and they're able to keep it, right? And so this is Zacchaeus, right? They use physical violence to get what they want. And so Jesus is passing through and, Jesus is just, and Zacchaeus is just one of the curious people in the crowd. He climbs up the, the sycamore tree, right? Uh, this crowd is full of curious pilgrims, false disciples, true disciples. Um, at this point, we're just told that he wanted to seek Jesus, uh, see who was passing through. And, and we're also told that uh, he's a chief tax collector. He's unconverted at this point, right? And there's a caravan going to Jerusalem, which was typical during the Passover. And so there's a ton of people in the road passing through Jericho. There's only one road to get there at this point, right? Uh, there's only one road, only one way to, to get there. And the Passover is, is coming near. I mean, there's a caravan of people who are about to climb up this steep ascent into Jerusalem. And Zacchaeus is, what we're told, short, small in stature, right? And he couldn't see, so he climbs this short-trunked, long-limbed tree like the ones we have here in Mandeville. And, uh, and they knew the road, they knew the path, so Zacchaeus ran on ahead, climbed up into that tree, those long branches, sat on it, perched up, waited for Jesus to pass by. And we see Jesus initiate this salvific work. Listen now, listen now. He stops out of all the people in the crowd. This is a picture of salvation. Out of all the people who are there. This is what's happened to you if, if you've been born again. Out of all the people in the world. And his attention is set on you for just a moment. And he looks up at Zacchaeus. He locks eyes with him. And he says, he commands him. And this is personal. He commands Zacchaeus to come down. This displays Jesus' omniscience, right? He calls him by name, though he never met him before. He gives him two commands. There are two imperatives. Hurry and come down, right? Then he uses a word in the Greek that translates must, which he's used at other times, I must come to your house today. Uh, well, it wasn't that Jesus just had some great need. It's that this was part of divine plan. This word has been used over and over and over again in the scriptures to describe something that must happen in accordance with the divine plan while he was on earth. We see it in numerous examples. Luke 2, 49, 4, 43, 9, 22, 13, 33, 17, 25, 22, 37, 24, 7, 24, 44. Here's one example. Luke 9 says this, the son of man must suffer many things. You see that? He's saying there, this is the plan. Yeah, I'm the Messiah, but I'm gonna have to go to the cross, right? This is the divine plan of God and be rejected by the elders, chief priests. This is before it ever happened. This is before it ever happened. He's predicting his sufferings here. This is before it even, he, it even happened. He knew what was gonna happen to him because that was the plan of God. You understand that? So this is what must happen. He must be killed and on the third day be raised. According to the divine plan, Zacchaeus' salvation must happen and it must happen today. He's going to his house. Zacchaeus, come down here now. We got a divine appointment to take care of. Your salvation, right? That's, what, that's what's happening here. And it's in God's eternal plan to end up with this man at this house on this day where he will repent of his sins and be saved. That's grace, that's mercy, that's sovereignty, that's divinity, that's authority, that's initiative, right? The initiative of the Savior to seek the sinner, to rescue him from sin and destruction and hell. Such mercy, such grace, such love, such power. This is the work of the Savior. This is the reason for his incarnation. This is the reason for his proclamation. This is the reason for his crucifixion. It's to bring about regeneration, salvation for sinners. This is what he came to do, and this is what he's going to do with Zacchaeus. This is what he does. He seeks and he saves the sinner who is lost in sin and without any hope, without any hope. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
right? It says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though the sinner is still in his sin, Christ dies and does this saving work in the heart of, in light of the sinner, right? He's the only one who can provide this salvation. He's the only one who can make one right with God. And the Bible says that you're not only lost, but you're dead in your sins. Dead. Dead. That's a choice word. Because you need to come what? If you're dead, you need to come alive. You need to come alive. You, you won't even uh, see clearly because these things the Bible says are spiritually discerned. It's the Spirit who has to give you understanding and insight. This is God's gracious work here. It's his initiative, right? He has to do this work in the, save, in, the, in the sinner's life to save the sinner, and he does it here. He does it. So we see this seeking work of God, the seeking work of God, right? Aren't you grateful that God, by his own initiative, in his own power, sends his son to save sinners who cannot save themselves. What an unbelievable truth to understand about God. Right? What an unbelievable truth that he initiates this work. And he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. He'd be fully just to leave you in your sin and let you just keep on walking. Right? And so... We see now the saving, number two, verses six through nine. Read them with me, along with me. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Here Jesus gives and affirms Zacchaeus' salvation. Okay? Verse six, we start by seeing this. Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' commands um, by doing what? Obeying them. He hurries and he comes down. He didn't wait. He didn't argue. He wasn't hesitant. He didn't hold on. He didn't say, hey, hey, Jesus, you know, hold on now. I got a little bit left of my past life that I got I to gotta hold on to. Oh, you know, let me go back and, and collect these taxes uh, for just a minute. At, at this point, there's some kind of work that's being done in the heart of Zacchaeus. Some kind of work is being done right now. Some divine work. Some kind of change is taking place at this point, right? Uh, He didn't reject Jesus's call because of the riches of his home and his possessions. I mean, think about this. Uh, You know, he could have said, hey, you're coming to my house? You understand how many, you know, breakable items I have in there? How many uh, possessions I have? Uh, You know, I want to keep my house clean. I'm using it for myself. Um, You know, at this point right now, all of his life is is going to be directed towards uh, seeing and, and understanding and, and uh, being known by the Savior, right? All of his possessions are for the service of the Savior at this point. He doesn't care. He, he's receiving it joyfully. Yes, come into my house. And this is clear that it's a supernatural work. You can't argue that. Why? Because Jesus just got done telling us with the rich young ruler that it's impossible for the for the rich to submit to his lordship. Impossible, right? He, he just got done saying this. It'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? He said, what's impossible with man, though, is possible with who? God has initial initiative here. He pursues the sinner. He does this some, somehow this divine work through the Holy Spirit's work in the sinner's heart, right? And... The wind, just like the wind, it just blows where it wishes, right? And now it's blowing through Zacchaeus' mind. It's blowing through Zacchaeus' heart. 
right? And so here we see, maybe he's convicted at this point. Maybe here he, he's ready for his life to change. He, he, wants, he wants something different here, right? And so this is, this is big. At verse six, he hurries and he comes down and he receives him, what? Joyfully, right? It, this, is, um, this is something supernatural. Like the man who, who finds that great pearl of great price representing the kingdom of God, right? Or the man who finds the buried treasure in the field representing the kingdom of God. He's joyful about receiving this. And so verse eight here, um, I'm sorry, verse seven. And when they saw it, they all what? Grumbled. They all grumbled. Now, now here's why. why. Why is this happening? Well, they, meaning the Jewish crowd, uh, those who thought they were righteous by their own works, right? These are people who, th- who are unaware of their sinful condition and their need for repentance and faith, right? They think they can keep the law of God. Now, this might be uh, viewed sometimes as, oh, these are the super religious people. Can I tell you, I think m- the liberal church is more like um, Pharisees. You know why? Because they believe that they're just acceptable by God on their own. Right? Like God just loves me for me. Listen now, that is false. Right? You need to repent and be saved. God will not accept you just the way you are. You need salvation. And so they're all grumbling. These are people who think that they can keep the law on their own. They're unaware of their sinful condition and the judgment that's impending. And so here, they think that the righteousness could come through works of the law rather than divine mercy. And this is setting up Jesus's point. I've come to save sinners. They thought the Messiah would just come and establish Israel. They're realizing by what Jesus came to do that they are the ones who need saving. They, they need to realize that, though they reject it. We'll see that next. So they grumble, and here it signifies their, their deep condemnation. That's the word. That's the idea here of grumble, right? Their deep condemnation. Uh, they have no recognition of their own sinful condition. Uh, that's why we talk about sin so much here is because we understand that the only way, in order for, for, the only way someone is saved is through Christ. We, we glory in the gospel here, and we talk a lot about our sinfulness here right? Um, But we also are called to holiness. So just because you're called to that doesn't mean you're like a Pharisee. That's what you should become after you come to know Christ. The goal of the Christian life after salvation is maturity, holiness, purity, not greatness in the eyes of the world, right? So you're a sinner, you need saving, then you are made holy, right? And they don't understand any of this. And so they misunderstand the reason for the Messiah's coming, thinking that he came to establish some immediate, physical, prosperous kingdom for Israel, which is, by the way, what most most of the world thinks. Jesus came to make my life better. Jesus came to save you from his own wrath. You got a, a lot worse problems than whether or not you can't get a certain type of vehicle, right? So he came to call and save sinners. Verse seven, it's, they say this man is, you know, he's gone to be the, the guest of a man who is a, a sinner. Gone to be a guest here literally means to take off one's clothes. That's how we get the idea that Jesus is spending the night here. Uh, it literally means to take off one's garment, Right, and, and so the, the idea here that a Jew would spend the night in one who is employed by Rome, has dishonest dealings of his own people, would even further discredit the Messiah, right? This can't be the Messiah. He is going to stay at a, a ceremonially unclean person's house, right? Again, still thinking they could keep the law. In the eyes of the Jewish crowd, this discredits him. Um, but that's why the Messiah has come, to save people who realize that they need saving, 
right? And so if you don't realize you need saving, it's just pride. The true prideful one is the one who says, I'm not a sinner, I'm not that bad, I don't need saving, right? That, that's that's the, where this pride is coming from in, in, the, in the Pharisees or, or the Jews in general. Those who don't need, they don't think they need to repent. They don't need to trust him by faith. So again, sinner here is a label that's given just to tax collectors and their posse. Remember that? They're considered unclean, unable to keep the law of God, right? So verse eight here, now we see um, that uh, uh, we see the savings start to take place here. It's already taken place. It's, you can't divide it, um, but, but you know what I mean here. All right, verse eight. And Zacchaeus stood and said to him, said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is incredible. Zacchaeus stood. That's the Greek word to take a stand, to take a stand. It's, it's indicating a formal decision. He stood, right? Zacchaeus stood. The idea here is that Zacchaeus made a formalized decision. He, he stood, right? That's the idea. He, he stood firm. He, he stood in this. He took a stand. I'm, I'm following the Lord, right? And that's beginning this indication that, Jesus, that, that Zacchaeus is experiencing salvation. I wonder if you've taken that stand. Honestly, you're going to follow Christ because no matter what he says and no matter no matter how it affects your life negatively in this world, he's the Lord, he's right. Are you gonna be wise in your own eyes? Here at this point, Zacchaeus takes a stand. I'm all in. This is the Messiah, this is the Christ. I need salvation, right? This is what's happening at this point. And then he calls him what? What does he call him? Lord. Zacchaeus stood and then he said to the, to the, the Lord, behold, what? Lord. This is indicating belief and submission. But then he displays his belief and submission. Remember what we said about the rich young ruler? The true test of true salvation is what? And remember what? Lordship. Right? Zacchaeus said, I mean, the rich young ruler said, I kept all that. I believe in God. I believe you're, you're good, Jesus. I, I believe that, that I've kept the law. What was the true test of whether or not he was born again? Lordship. Okay, here's what you lack. Go sell everything and follow me. And then he turned away sad. Right? Because it was, it was revealed. You could say whatever you want, but what's revealed about whether or not you have salvation um, you know, is shown by whether or not you follow Jesus. First John says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So, so we're shown two things here. Jesus's affirmation, which we're gonna see in a second of this man's salvation, but also the display of his true salvation through his repentance, Right? Uh, this is really, really uh, so helpful, right? We saw this. The true test is submitting, obeying. That's a true test of G uh, salvation. Jesus said to the rich young ru ruler, remember, I just, and I just said it, Luke 18, 22, sell all you have, distribute to the poor, you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. And he rejects it. But this man, this man does exactly that, Right? This is the truth about true discipleship. Luke 9, Jesus said this earlier. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And that's not arbitrary. That's not like, okay, you know, I'm taking up my cross today, right? Like following Jesus or following his words. So you need to understand and follow his words. The Bible. You're not gonna be perfect, Right? But it's clear the trajectory of your life is one of repentance and faith continually in the words of Christ. 
So the rich ruler says he believes God, but it's displayed that he doesn't. If you really believe this, you would serve me. But Zacchaeus, on the other hand, says here, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's the first thing he says. Now, this is significant because James says this is true religion, right? The one who makes his faith evident by his what? Works. I mean, this is exactly it. So Zacchaeus displays this by giving half the good, half his goods to the poor, right? And then this is also an act of obedience to God's law because he says next, watch this. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is, this is incredible. It's not that he's saying now, I don't know if I've defrauded anyone, right? He's saying, in essence, you know, the people who am I have defrauded, I will restore. But you wanna know what, why this is big? is because uh, in the Old Testament, there were various portions assigned to pay back for restitution when one has sinned. Uh, explicitly, this is revealed to us in Exodus 22, the whole chapter, really. 20% was standard. Uh, furthermore, there was full restitution, one for one. Uh, there was more than that, right, which was double, and so on. But Zacchaeus here goes with the highest amount that you see in Exodus 22.1. One of the highest amounts. I think there's a fourfold and a fivefold. Fivefold for ox, fourfold for sheep. But it's for thievery. It's for, uh, it's for using um, uh, abuse to, to, to take from someone else. And, and Zacchaeus here is going with one of the highest amounts for restitution in this. Listen now, in display of his repentance, he doesn't simply do the least amount possible. This man is all in. It's a sign of genuine transformation. It's a sign of genuine transformation. He desires to be completely changed, one way of life, following the Lord, having his salvation. Anyone who does as little as possible to be a Christian should question whether or not they really are one. That's not the sign of one who has been born again with the Holy Spirit inside of them. This man does as much possible as, as possible, right? This man does as much as possible. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, he's essentially confessing here and it shows his faith. He has extreme repentance. And isn't it unique here? Because here's how he repents. He repents in some of the same ways in which was the most dominating sins of his life, right? Like, think about this. This was the most dominating area of sin in his life. Now, isn't it unique here that the man notoriously known for his idolatry of money, now, for the, really for all of church history, becomes one who Christians for centuries have looked at as an example of generous giving. But that's what the Lord does, right? That's what the Lord does. And so here's this transformation. Now, interestingly here, and you've probably wondered this if you looked at it, you'd say, oh, I don't see any gospel presentation here, right? Where, where, is the, where is the words? We only see Zacchaeus' repentance, him calling him Lord, and then later on Jesus is affirming this salvation. Well, I think there's just two reasons for that, pretty simple. At this point in Luke's gospel, we don't need it. We've already had Matthew, Mark, and now Luke, right? The readers know the gospel. The readers know the truth at this point. We don't need Luke to say, uh, Jesus made clear God's holiness, his own sinfulness, Christ's own righteousness, and Zacchaeus' response. Like, we just understand what, we understand the message at this point, right? It can be assumed that Christ did explain these things to him, right? Faith comes by what? Hearing. And so Luke admits this. By this time, we know this information, right? And uh, not to say we won't have it again. It's just here, Luke decides not to give it. Assume the reader knows the message. He wants to focus on something else, which is his repentance and Christ's affirmation of this salvation, right? But it should be clear to us um, that, that this, 
that this is uh, the message that Zacchaeus is responding to. And, um, and so here Zacchaeus is actually affirmed in his salvation by Christ, which is even more important for us to see because there's a lot of people who responded to the message along Christ's ministry, but they were not truly what? Saved. There's a lot of false disciples who made a profession at one time. Yeah, I'm a born again Christian, right? Only to, like we saw in John chapter six, walk away from Christ, no longer walk with him. Here, Jesus is actually affirming true regeneration has taken place. Get that? Okay, so now look, this is what, what truly matters. Now also, there's another reason. Um, and, uh, and I think here, like I said, it's, it's to, to, uh, to give us um, other information. So it's because we already know it and it's to focus on the other information now. Um, we understand here that this is the work of God because like I said, up in verse two, look at verse two, he was a chief tax collector and he was what? Rich. Well, Jesus already told us about rich people and again, in the rich young ruler. So this man was, had the work of God in his life, right? Jesus was now at his house. Uh, the man showing evidence of repentance. Uh, Jesus has obviously told him the message and, um, and this can't happen without God's work because Jesus already told us that. And so now we see this, we already, we already should have this conclusion. But at verse nine, we see this affirmation just explicitly. Jesus said to him, what? Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, we only have a, about five more minutes, so stay locked in as we finish this off, okay? This is not meaning that the whole household is saved, but that someone in the household has been saved. That someone is Zacchaeus. And the word here that's used for salvation describes the restored relationship that happens with God when God delivers someone from their sin. It's happened, it's been used three other times in Luke's gospel. Jesus continues then, he says, today salvation has, been, has come to this house. Do you know that's what salvation means is deliverance. It's, del it's to be delivered. To be saved means to be delivered from threat, right? That's what the word means. What's the threat? God's wrath because of sin. Jesus delivers you from that threat. So again, here, salvation is not, uh, I get a prosperous life. The essential aspect of salvation is you need to be what? Delivered. You need to be delivered. That's what the world needs to hear. You need to be delivered. The world would say, well, delivered from what? Right? That's the aspect here. Now he says, since you also are a son of Abraham. Now I know some of this might confuse some of you, but it's pretty simple. There are two really possible meanings at this point. I think both are in view. Let me explain these. We're almost done here. First of all, we learned earlier from the account that Zacchaeus' name is what? Jewish. One aspect that then Jesus is saying here, I think, is that first he came to seek and to save who? The Jews. Uh, I, you know, this man has received salvation since he himself is a, is a son of Abraham. The Messiah has come to Israel to save them as sinners. They need to understand that. They expected a kingdom, but he fulfilled his promise in coming to who? The Jews. And so Jesus is saying, hey, the fact that this man is a tax collector doesn't discredit him from um, the people whom I came to fulfill God's salvific work, and that's to Israel, right? I'm doing exactly here what the Son of Man was predicted to do, which is save sinners, and first I'm coming to the Jews, and then to who? The Gentiles. And so Jesus is making clear, Zacchaeus' job doesn't disqualify him, right? He's, his status is unclean, um, but this is why Jesus came. The Jews didn't understand at this point, why are you coming to the nation of Israel? I'm coming to seek and to save that which is lost. Lost meaning uh, once was, was possessed and now is gone. He came, listen now, he came to save the people that he promised to come to first. 
This is his nation. This is the, the nation of Israel. But then here, secondly, the reason is this, is that Zacchaeus came, or Jesus came now. Uh, today, salvation has come to his house since he also is a, a son of, of Abraham, meaning what? A, a true son of Abraham, right? And so is he, is he referring to the purpose of his coming to the Jews because they misunderstood his coming to Israel? Is he talking about here now Zacchaeus is saved since he has become a true son of Abraham, meaning not one by line or by uh, blood, but by true salvation, right? Paul says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. The circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Galatians says this, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know that then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, right? Galatians 3 says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Romans 4 says, and to make him a father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The true sons of Abraham are those who have trusted God by faith in his promise that he gave to Abraham, which was the coming Messiah. That's exactly what's happened here. You understand? That's how someone becomes part of the family of God through salvation in the Messiah who was promised to Abraham through faith. And so now, this is what he's saying here. Now, let me just point this out. I'm only gonna point it out for just a minute. Number three, which is the summary. And Jesus says, here's why I've come. I came to seek and to save the lost. This first points to Israel and then it points to just the whole world who is created in God's image to glorify him and then went astray. And the same thing with Israel. Son of man signifies this kingship, this, this kingship, but also this humanity. The son of man, the human, God came in human form, right? To die in order to save sinners. Well, this is the idea here. Save means to be delivered, seek, means that he does the initiative. Lost here means one who's destined for destruction. That's why he's come. Now listen, you've got to protect and preserve this doctrine. You've got to receive it yourself if you haven't. He didn't come for any other reason. Don't make any mistake. This is all spiritual. This is not for any fleshly, worldly purpose. You've got to receive it if you haven't. And this is what you proclaim to the world. He didn't come for any other reason. He came to seek and to save sinners. Someone must understand their own sinful condition and that the greatest need that they have is to be saved by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is making this clear. This is the reason he's come. And sadly, we're gonna see next week that people will indeed reject this. But this is the message and this is the reason, this is the purpose that Christ gives us for his coming to the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Um, uh, we could say so much more about all these details, but we trust you to take these truths and deepen them on our hearts. Help us to go back throughout this week to even meditate upon these further. Let them overwhelm us. Let them, let them cause in us um, uh, a zeal to, to preserve and protect these truths. This is, the, this is Christology. This is soteriology. This is what your word teaches about your purpose and your coming. Help us to preserve these truths, to protect these truths because so much error and false doctrine and false people believing false things about Jesus and, and who you are and what you came to do and and so many things that the TV says and so many, and so many things that the world says and, and we're more preoccupied with, with trivial things in this world uh, than, than with words of eternal life from the words of an eternal God. I mean, this is so important. And God, help us to preserve this, to protect it. We need to stand firm on the truth. And we need to refute and reject 
false doctrine about you, Jesus, because it will damn people to hell. And God, help us to proclaim this truth to the lost. And the primary reason Jesus came to this earth was to save sinners. Let the people realize then that they are those sinners who need saving. And let them understand that it comes through the atoning sacrifice of the spotless lamb, the God who became man, the king. And that the Christ didn't come to do anything else but to save. And let the people around us be saved. Let them come into this building. Let them sit under the word of God. Let them be changed. Let them become holy. Though uncomfortable at first, this word will produce life in them. Let our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, the people that we interact with every day, hear this. Let us be a church unified on this particular mission not looking at ourselves, but lost in this mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.